From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you from the SiriusXM Business Radio studio in Huntsman Hall, Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, West Philadelphia. That means we're live. That means we're in person. That means we're on professional equipment. All kinds of benefits today. This is Cade Massey hosting this episode of Wharton Moneyball, and the whole crew is in here, and the whole crew is in person. Shane Jensen in the familiar seat to my right in the familiar Boston Red Sox cap. Eric Bradlow to my left in uh, reliably pen-labeled sportswear. And Audie Weiner, not fresh off a bicycle, but actually rather dapper today. And that's not something we always say about Audie Weiner. <laughs> no, no, you shouldn't say it. It wouldn't be true if you were to say it. But uh, didn't didn't bike in today. That was a curious well, set of you, you added a little life expectancy, Audie. We appreciate. I did. That. We appreciate that. In the like the seventh or eighth decimal place, gentlemen. Afternoon to you. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do these days. The show will go up on Wednesday morning. It'll be played on SiriusXM a few times over the next week, and we'll get the podcast up on Wednesday also. We have guests here in the middle two segments. Q2 and Q3 will be guests. We'll talk more about them as we go. Open lines in this first segment, open lines in the fourth. Very curious, gentlemen. We've got an open topic here. Where are we going to go? What has caught your eye in the world of sports? Well, For me, what's caught my eye, I mean, there's a lot of action going on in the NFL, and it's really around quarterbacks, which is where it always starts with. I mean, I just the first thing that caught my eye was this, I thought, a brilliant trade on the part of the Chicago Bears. I mean, they have Justin Fields. There's no reason to believe Justin Fields couldn't be as good as any of the quarterbacks that were in this year's draft. Uh, he certainly showed something. Uh, you know, I'd be interested, obviously, Kate, given your experience with the draft, they traded the number one pick for two number ones, two number twos, and DJ Moore, who's a recognized all-pro. That seems like a pretty good haul to me. Um, it's not even obvious that the number nine pick in this year's draft will be much worse than the number one pick. And if you add the fact that they don't need a quarterback and four quarterbacks are being drafted ahead of them, you could argue they're going to get the fifth best other player, assuming they don't move up. I just think it was an absolutely great trade for the Chicago Bears. And I, I, I said, I agreed with them. Why wait? They got a great offer. Take it. They can start planning now. Yeah, and I mean, I I think it's also, it's relatively low risk. I mean, they got a great haul. And I mean, you know, they're kind of, obviously, it's it, to do that trade, it's, it's an acknowledgement that they at least believe Justin Fields could be the answer for them. And even if he's not, they're going to have, a, if he's not the answer, they're going to have a high draft pick again next year. And so, you know, I, I mean, it's sort of, they, they know that they don't need a quarterback immediately. And I think that trading down in a situation where you don't have an immediate need a quarterback is is kind of, you can always make an argument especially for that. in a year with four quarterbacks ahead of you which essentially gives you the fifth pick yeah so let me ask it a question that puts it on a on a numerical basis you you guys are paying attention to the fact that they don't need a quarterback the four quarterbacks are going to go ahead therefore it's an opportunity to get extra value how about just equilibrium value what is two first round picks uh, all pro a signee. I mean, what is what is the value of this trade? Just straight straightaway equal equality without any specific need. How, how does this rate? Uh, so I haven't priced it out. So that this it's priceable depending on how you value draft chart, how you value you know draft position. 
Um, so what's, what's true is that a, a lot of people have run these curves. And one of the things that's been lovely as a researcher is, you know, we worry a lot about replication in social science. And this is something that has really been replicating well, I'm proud to say. Everything looks like it has the same shape that we came up with however many years ago it was, 15, 15 plus years ago, except for quarterbacks. Quarterbacks aren't you – know, what we always find is that the value of the, the picks increase as you go through the first round, which is not what you'd expect. You're supposed to have the most valuable pick at the top of the first round. But with QBs, they actually do decline a little bit. The value is higher at the very top. So it does depend on what you're going to spend them on. But in general, I'm sure this thing – I don't I don't know how the thing priced straight up, but I'm with Eric in that from the Bears perspective, the first pick in general, the first pick is the most valuable pick in the draft if and only if you trade it. If you use it, it's not the most valuable pick in the draft. Now, if you use it on a quarterback, that's the best you can do. But when you can trade and get that, that much draft capital, it is almost always the right thing to do. Could I just uh, follow up? Is there variance on that? I mean, every, I mean, you're oh just talking gosh. about average. So if is there a particular year where the first pick is going to be so much but more the, valuable? Yes, the variance, the surprising thing is that the variance goes in the wrong direction. You're kind of putting a cap on the surplus you can get because of how expensive those guys are. Yeah. So it's this weird thing where you often want variance, but you're locking in what you're what you're paying, and they have a hard time outperforming, outvaluing that, and so your variance is actually downside variance. Yeah, I mean, certainly we've seen Not over the last like, decade that, like, assuming you want to take a quarterback at the number one pick, um, the variance or sort of the uncertainty in the success of that is tremendous year to year. I mean, you know, Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck, you know, those years, uh, uh, the number one with, pick you'll was pay obvious. With, uh, Baker Mayfield. You okay with uh, you Jameis about, Winston? Those no. were number one of overall are. picks in no, the draft. I mean, yes. you think about the Baker Mayfield year. It was Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, and Josh Allen. Only one of those really worked out in kind of a level no, that would justify a top five No, no, pick. But, but but we kind of knew there was a lot of uncertainty in that year, didn't we? I mean, no one was saying no. Baker Mayfield was going to be a the, sure thing. I mean, think about— No, 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 no. The uncertainty was which quarterback to take, but right. it was, they, it was because they were all supposed to be great. And then in the end— yeah, you're right. He wasn't a consensus number one. It wasn't like Luck or Manning. That's true. But it wasn't one of these not a good draft year kind of But years. But, Adi, this year, let's remember again. I'm just going to listen again. Besides, there's Jameis Winston. Kyler Murray, I think, was the overall number one pick in the draft. You know, the jury's still out on whether Baker Mayfield. So all I'm commenting is, the, I'll use Cade's words, the one guarantee is that them trading down. Look, you could make an argument. You would take Justin Fields, given what he's shown already over many of the quarter of those top four quarterbacks, and the fact is they got an all-pro receiver and two number ones and a number two. So I'm just and two twos. I'm just saying it seems like an obvious trade to me. So, so let me let me give you let me give you a simple way to think about it. We ran the analysis. You know, we ran fancy econometrics and then we ran some super simple statistics. But my favorite study was to look at historically. All the trade downs out of the first round for two for one. So imagine if you have the first pick, all the different two pick bundles you could get for the first. For the second pick, all the different two pick bundles. And then comparing historically, how would you have done if you had held that pick or traded down for the other two, given all the possible two picks? And just comparing how often you do better by a couple different dimensions. One's just career starts, so you're not looking for necessarily Pro Bowls. But then consider the other one. What about Pro Bowls, if you're really looking for the stars? And by both dimensions, it's a dominant strategy to trade down. Of course, of course it is. That's, that's, that, I'm not disputing. I'm wondering how often does it happen 
that you are in one of those years. Uh, is it a Manning luck year? Did we know that in advance? Are we looking at Manning luck going backwards and saying, of course? Or did we know no. that in advance? Andrew Luck, we definitely did. They, ta- I mean, the, the the suck for luck campaign was very active was the active. entire previous year. That that now on Manning, Manning, the answer is no because that was the Ryan Leaf year. Yeah, correct. And he there wasn't was actually some, taken. There, and they were one and two, and there was, was some debate. there was some debate about that, which is you know stunning. And so I'm, I'm asking kind of almost a historical question. How frequently does someone like Andrew Luck come around where we just know he's high expectation and low variance? I don't have that confidence in any of the four quarterbacks that are coming out. I mean, Bryce Young was great in college. He's five foot ten, 200 pounds. So I'm bigger than Bryce Young. You're bigger than Bryce Young. I don't want to get hit by a 350-pound man. And I don't – I'm just saying – At some point, you have to say the possibility of him being small, besides line things batted, besides speed of the NFL... Just there hasn't been a wildly successful five foot ten quarterback. Well, so that's a hundred percent. There's a big risk on that. To answer Adi's question anecdotally, Manning and Luck are the ones people throw around. Um, you'd probably say your boy Trevor Lawrence is close. Yes, he mm-hmm. was. Yep. Um, and then but, going back the other direction, you'd probably go back to John Elway maybe in 83. 83, 98, when did Luck come out? 10 or so? That sounds right, 9 or 10. Was Marino not? I can't remember if Marino even was. With Trevor Marino Lawrence. was the Elway year, and he was the oh. last of the first-round quarterbacks. And Correct. This is what, this is the, yeah. That's what motivated our study is that the order, the 88, 80, 98 rolled, I mean, 98 is painting. 99 rolled around, and people talked about draft draft as the best quarterback draft since 83. But they hadn't learned the lesson of 83. The lesson of 83 should have been, you don't know which of these guys is going to be best, because 83 started with Elway the first round, started with Elway, ends in Marino, and in between is Todd Blackledge, Tony Eason, Jim Kelly's in there. Oh, and who's the Jet? O'Brien? Ken O'Brien. Ken O'Brien. Kenny O'Brien. Those guys were undrafted before Marino, and yet they're sitting there in 99 saying, this is the best quarterback since 83, without having led, learned the lesson of 83 because they were sure they knew who the best quarterback was going to be in 99. There was a big debate in 99 about who the next quarterback was going to be, but there was no debate on who the best one. Do you know who it was? Tim Couch. Tim oh, yeah, Couch. that's right. Tim Couch. <laughs> Brown legend Tim Couch. Yeah. So is a lesson from this that we just can't forecast the value of a quarterback coming out of Largely. college? Largely. And it's not exclusive to quarterbacks. We do better on quarterbacks than we do on other positions. Well, I don't know about that. They're so much more valuable when we hit. No, and I mean, I, I think yeah. you want to make that. To, it's it's kind of like the statement that GREs are not or like SATs are not predictive of college performance. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a truncated Looking at group, a very course, truncated – right. right. it's, it's so, so yes, we can evaluate quarterbacks yes. coming out of college, but you get far enough into the tails and I don't think it's oh, That's the point. I mean this is – this is, and people think way too much of their top picks. So, I think so, Adi, so, let me give you the first statistics, we, the first stat we ever ran to even decide whether to do the study. We had this question about whether we wanted to do this research. Let's collect one data point to see if it's worth pursuing. That question was, what's the probability that a player is better, a player at any given position, is better over his career than the next player drafted at his position? Which is sort of what teams are doing when they're trading up for a guy. They're saying, I, you know, we've got three guys are going to go in the next. We, we need a cornerback. 
these three guys, we got to have this one. We can't wait for these other two. So, so do we get a chance to play before you tell us the answer? Yeah. What do you think? Pro- <laughs> so you can say over the whole draft, or I can say I can tell you over the first round. What so the I, I, my guess is that only the first Let two me, or three positions has there any substantive difference in in that probability. Let's say across, the first versus the second, the third versus the fourth at across, a given position. All, at a given position, I'll even give you a hint: the average distance between positions is something like eight picks. Oh, I see. So we're looking at the at the uh, difference between the, the two positions. Uh, I would say that... Same that, position, two sequential guys yeah, taken at that uh, position. One to two, two to three, all of them. All of them. Yeah, yeah. All of them. Well, on average, I would say that advantage is probably barely bigger than 50% and would not not statistically significantly different. 52%. Yeah. yeah I was and not guess 55. So and we, not, we, not call, sure. different. we yeah. call that better than the next guy. The stat is better than the next guy. Right. And then, but the real question would be nice if, if the, the person goes number one, where is that? What's that? Well, and if, I would guess that that's probably much higher. For sure, that right one tail works that way. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you the first round, what do you think it is in the first? Just exclusively the first round, which is going to be, you know, the top two, three guys at a position. 55%. Yeah, I'd be in that neighborhood. Y'all are good at this game. Fifty-six. Yeah, we are. I mean, so higher. So so that's you you, are good at shrinking towards fifty (laughs) percent. That's right. (laughs) And so the obvious intuition here is that people making those trades don't think that they're just buying two percent or six percent. They feel like they're getting much Mm -hmm. more than that. I think even a good answer to your question is right now as we're sitting here. Maybe this is not as informative as it should be. There's no consensus on who the Carolina Panthers are necessarily going to pick at number one. Now, that should already tell you mm-hmm. that the chances that whoever they pick is really far out in the right tail is probably low. Because there is no consensus, number one. As people have made their... I could see it won't be I forget the third guy's name. It's not it could be CJ Stroud, it could be Bryce Young. Anthony Richardson. No, I was even thinking the other Le- guy. Will Levis. I don't see it being Will Levis. I just I just don't see someone saying Will Levis because I think they'd pick CJ Stroud before Levis. It's an interesting non transitivity. Okay. I think Stroud dominates at least what I've been reading. Stroud okay. dominates Levis for most people. Okay. But someone could make an argument because of Richardson's physical stature and everything and all his combine stuff. And Bryce Young are non-comparable. Interesting. Okay. Sure. That's why I'm ruling out Levis for one. Okay. Is there okay. any secret sauce in making a prediction? Is there so anyone figured something out? Like one of the you, you brought up Trevor Lawrence, and and you, and one of the reasons why I been tracking that guy is because he had, I think, the second or first highest high school uh, relate uh, rated career that I saw in the last like 15 years. Yeah, by the Audi stat. The, yeah, and and that's just that, that's so essentially he had the highest probability of getting drafted of anyone I've ever seen coming out of high coming out of high school. That says nothing about what his position in the draft would be. In fact, even when you're the highest probability, it was still only 75 percent. Because you still have a quarter yeah, chance, I mean, chance I, of getting in, but I, 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 but let me just figure: does that matter? Does does going back that far is that a, a statistic that anybody uses and thinks about? You know, that's interesting. I just heard a conversation with the guest that we're going to have next quarter, Ed Fang, with a basketball analyst saying that he uses high school rankings in his college basketball power rankings. Mm-hmm. But that makes a lot more sense because they're only one year out of yep. high school or two years or whatever. The young guys. It's an interesting question whether the high school ranking ought to matter whenever you're drafting a guy four or five years later. I, I haven't seen much of that, and I'm a little skeptical. Well, let me ask a quick question. Andrew Luck, coming out of high school, where was he? I don't know. No, I, I, don't, I don't know that, and I don't remember that. Well, was Joe Burrow coming out of high school? Well, he was no, he was well, not. Right? But he was I mean, not. but he, he was, he he's an example of a late bloomer. He was good. That, I, I, not, I, he seemed to not be on people's radar until that incredible year. I think it would have been surprising. Cade might know this better than I do, but Andrew Luck went to Stanford. Yes. So 
the number one all high school quarterback chooses to go to Stanford. Now, well, there's a lot of other reasons to go to Stanford. He's a very intelligent guy. I understand. He had a, he had a famous father, so he was on people's his radar was because coach, his, right? well, he played football. He played. He was oh, backup, yeah, right. I think, for the Oilers at one point. But then he went on to be an AD. He was a very highly thought of AD, I and see. so people knew who he was. But I don't. These days, you kind of know who the top quarterbacks are coming out of high school. At least if you're a degenerate about, like Peyton I am. Manning? Was he superstar coming out of high school? I mean, his I father again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was the first of the sons, and so he, yeah, he was a big recruiting battle. But that was like I don't know, mid nineties. That must have been early mid nineties, and right. it, wasn't, it wasn't. There wasn't as much transparency on it then as there is now. Well, well Maddie Batts has just sent us a little in, uh, explanation. They both of them were four star recruits, but not five. So. So Superstar, five, just to be not, just to be clear, five star. There's not a set number, but it's ballpark. You know, twenty five, thirty, thirty two guys a year mm-hmm. fall into that five star category. Total across all positions. It's really elite. And then the fours are, you know, I don't know, another hundred, hundred and twenty five. Yep. And so the the there's a big range. This is the virtue of the Audi analysis mm-hmm. because there's so much difference in the quality of the top of the fours versus the bottom of the fours, especially because there's only thirty five beyond them. And so top of the fives and the bottom of the fives. Is there? That's yeah. a, that's a little depends on the position, right? So, so I'm going to guess a five star defensive end is a guarantee lock 100 percent going to play in the NFL as long guy. as you don't get injured. Basically. The other yes. the other strategy I like that's being taken by a number of teams is to hire is to get like a reasonable quarterback. Like I like what the Raiders did. So I, they're the ones that signed Jimmy G, right? Yes. So they signed Jimmy G. Now look, he can get, he has an out after one year. It's a four-year deal, but he has an out after one year. They're sitting at number seven. The thought is that they may trade up to get a quarterback of the future. So they're sitting there. Jimmy G could be good. He could be fine for the next three to five years. Or you have Jimmy G as your starter, which you're paying $20 million for, not $45 million for. And then you draft somebody, yeah. and then you're sitting there. Jimmy with, G gives them at least four to five games to kind of get used to the system before they're starting. No, no, that's, <laughs> no, no you might right? be right, but that's fine. Or Jimmy G Better plays great, and Jimmy, you keep Jimmy G, and then this other person plays, plays for Plays great for an entire season. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm not I'm, sure we've seen that. No, I'm just commenting. I like the strategy also of the, yeah. the teams going no. for the mid-tier quarterback and drafting. That's yeah. all. Yeah, yeah. We don't we don't see a lot of mid mid-tier quarterback signings, and so now you're raising an interesting question. Like, will they do that? I love the strategy. It just feels in general that teams don't. Despite how everyone talks about the quarterback being the most valuable position in sports, they're still not investing enough capital in quarterbacks somehow. And I, I think also it seems like we're, it's a kind of a new, and this this is the kind of mo- only time in NFL history I've been watching where we actually have kind of free agent slash available mid tier quarterbacks or as many of them, right? I, and I think yeah, it's Derek kind of like- Carr, Jimmy Garoppolo, I mean, Jameis Winston was in that lowish mid tier. Mm-hmm. He ended up re-signing mm-hmm. with the Saints at a much lower number. So now they're sitting there with Derek Carr and Jameis Winston, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting dynamic there as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Derek Carr doesn't play well or gets injured. Trust me, they'll put Winston in there. Yeah, I mean, they've been trying to do that for the last two, three seasons as well. Mm-hmm. And have ended up with Andy Dalton at the end or something. Good fun, good fun. Well, we've only got another – This is the draft is the last week of April, so we've got I don't know, six weeks to do this. <laughs> you guys just love football. It's amazing. Know, yeah. Well, well, it's like, you know, you're you're probably seeing in me what I saw in Eric a couple of weeks ago when we got onto the baseball, like, rule changes or whatever. Oh. And Eric's whole – Aura just kind of lightened and sparkled, and he was just so happy talking about baseball. So thank you for indulging a little. Yeah. A no, little I mean, one thing I've talk. learned about football, which is considering I knew nothing when we started this program 10 years ago, I feel like I'm 
pretty conversant. Mm-hmm. It's actually very deep. There's a lot to talk about, um, mm-hmm. and in in particularly with the drafting and the recruiting, and that you don't really have in baseball. Well, and that's we're a gonna, lot of fun. We're gonna we're gonna talk. We're gonna have a D- Thomas Dimitrov interview next week where he started as a scout. He ends up as a GM, but he's totally grew up on that personnel side of the house. And you're right. It's a fascinating business. Well, look, if we want to change sports a little bit here to another good sport, I mean, so Scotty Scheffler did it again. Yes. So he won the, the Players' Championship by five strokes. He's now back to number one in the world. He's won, look, he's won six times in the last 13 months. I mean, Tiger's best year, I think he won eight or nine times. Six out of 27, I think. It's yeah, just, so six you, out of 27, which, you know, Tiger Woods, look, Tiger Woods did uh, that for 20 years. He won 25% of the tournaments he competed I would, in. I would, you, know, you know that in detail. I was remembering 25%, was 25%. But, I, but I didn't remember over how many how many years or what 20 period years. of time. But My also gosh. the other thing about Scheffler, but just here's another thing. <laughs> Scheffler has gone into the final round leading seven times. Do you want to guess how many times he's won out of those seven? Six? Three. <laughs> Three. Now, the reason I was yeah. contrasting that, this he was oh, two tiger, and four. Tiger, tiger. So here's yeah. the number for Tiger. Uh, Tiger's going in 44 times with the lead to the final round. What do you think his record is? It's like probably 40, 40 and four or something. Yeah. 42 and two. Yeah. Okay. So Scotty Scheffler has already lost more times than Tiger did his entire career yeah, going but what's into the final does Tiger come back to win? Well, let me. Uh, well, I will tell you because that's no, where Scheffler signs, apparently. Well, yeah, that too. Uh, I just think it's amazing, though, how this guy has been on a thirteen-month heater. I mean, he's now because he, you know, look, a lot of guys bunch their wins. We've talked about golf; you get locked mm-hmm. in your swing, you get bunched. He's kind of spread his out now. I'm not. I mean, he won. The, let me just say, by the way, he's only one of I think it's seven players now in their entire career who's won the Masters and the Players Championship. I mean, no, I'm saying there's only seven players that have won those two tournaments. It's like, you know, Nicholas, Woods, Palmer, Mickelson, Scotty Scheffler. I mean, he's basically had a Hall of Fame career. He, I think he's a Hall of Famer right now. He's Good close. Lord. So you're you're elevating the TPC into interesting territory. Most people consider it the fifth major. How long has it been around for? At least 45, 50 years because Since we Nicholas were kids, won right? it. Yeah, it's been around. Okay, I, so, I think right, the first so. time it was in the 60s. I know Palmer no, won it. Nicholas won it. Seventies, the latest. Because I know Palmer won it. Maybe in the first one, seventy three, seventy four. Don't you remember when there was such a big deal that the Island Green was created? I feel like that was in our in our not I'm just, just our I, I guess I'm shocked by that seven number. I guess more given it's been around so long. Because if you've picked any two ma- majors and looked at the number of players that have won both of them, is it really like I, I, I would have assumed that number was kind of was larger? than Okay, seven. so this is a good argument for it not being in the same category as a major because it probably has a weaker field than the majors. So like the international guys, I'm guessing, don't play it as much as they play the Masters. Oh, I was, or I'm the sorry, Open. I apologize. I was off by a year. 1974, 74. not 73. 74 yeah. was yeah. the first year of the players. Hmm. So it's older than Shane. And it used to be. Uh, just true. barely. Just <laughs> yeah, barely. But it, and it, by the way, the thing they did, which, which the uh, players love, it used to be in September. It was the end of the yeah, year championship, right. and they moved it to March. So, in some sense, it kicks off the quote unquote major season. Okay, same age as me. How many golfers out there have won by the Masters and won me over? It's probably <laughs> less than even seven. I don't know. It's Tiger and Jack Nicholas, by the way. It's two, <laughs> two, two. two. Okay. Either That's way, a... I'm just I, I'm just thrilled for Scheffler, and he just looks great. Look, he has to be. I know 
he has to be the favorite in the Masters. He has to be. He's the defending champ, but he has yeah, to be the favorite. But we have other guys on heaters. Like Rom. people have thought of been. He has been on a heater. The same kind of heater, right? I mean... Rom was on a very concentrated heater. So Rom was really good for about two months, but had about six months where he didn't well, win. And so, I don't think... I don't even think he had a bunch of top tens. Scotty Scheffler... I mean, all of his success has been in the last 13 months, but it's basically he's been winning, like... In bunches, but like in separate bunches. So you're sort of, you know, to the extent that we consider anybody a favorite going into the Masters, whoever the favorite is, each you're going to the Masters. Do you, would you kind of, is there like a mixture grouping where it's like, obviously Tiger, when he was the favorite, actually won at a crazy clip relative to kind of baseline. The baseline of even whoever's the favorite has got to be pretty low. Is she, where's Scheffler in the kind of, He's probably not a tiger level where it's like you you would actually give him a, a quarter chance or whatever, but he's probably not at the baseline well, of what favorites Kate do. Kate can probably tell us what the Masters odds are right now. Well, I'm not. I can't quite do that, but I have gotten a little data to get inform the Rom Scheffler thing we're talking about. Data Golf is a great source to go for these things. They have these beautiful, interesting, uh, seemingly rigorous rankings and interactive tools. We talk about them a lot. Just going straight to their rankings. Rahm and Scheffler are within a hundredth of a stroke on the strokes gained ranking at the top of the list. So Scheffler, Rahm is at plus 2.62 versus the field per round, and Scheffler is at plus 2.61 versus the well, field Well, let me tell you, round. shockingly, so I'm looking at the wow. Masters odds right here. I'm shocked by what I'm reading. Scheffler's third. I'm shocked. Shock, Scheffler's third. Because Rory is probably in there. Rory's second. Yeah. So Rahm at plus 700. McElroy 800 and Scheffler plus 1,000. So they're getting 10 to 1 odds on Scotty okay, Scheffler. Can, can let me jump in here. I've heard a lot of talk about momentum, Eric. Yep. I've heard a lot of heat talk. He's hot. Is it, uh, I, you know, in baseball we don't believe in it, at least. Uh, is is golf a sport where it's accepted there's heat? Yes. Uh, and and by uh, here's you, you take this as your greatest um, standard, and that is would you bet it, and they do. So in okay. the models there's a fair bit of non-stationary because it's known that momentum matters. It's not even momentum. It's basically non-stationarity that says guys are in these regimes. And you can see it. You can see it in the data. You really can see these regime shifts, and they get they just play at a higher plateau for a while, and then they drop off. And so, for example, we talked about Morikawa was in this in a couple of years ago. And I mean, you could, if you go to the Data Golf page and start digging around, you can actually find these plateaus. It's neat. What is the cause? Anyone know? It's a very mechanical operation, what they do, and you kind of get in and out of good mechanics, just like a pitcher. Not just like a pitcher, but analogous to a pitcher. That would be my guess. That's probably one of the reasons, right? It it feels that way. I'm not sure how satisfying that is as a mechanistic de, um, description, um, like a causal description, but I think you're capturing the experience. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean... I, I don't I'm know. guessing at the experience because I've never actually gotten into the good mechanics regime as a golfer myself. <laughs> you have. But... It's only lasted a couple of strokes. Yeah, one, 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 one lucky <laughs> hit. I was like, man, my regime. Nope. Next hit, back down to the other one. Yeah. Um, so anyway, good, good fun. But I do. Th- I mean, that, Eric, we have to be careful because on jumping too quickly on Scotty when we just saw Rom there, and then the whole time, the whole time, McElroy hasn't been on this kind of heater, but in all the rankings, all the quant models, he's right there with them. Yeah, so I'm still I'm still going to ride the, not momentum horse, the negative one. He hasn't won a major in eight years. This has to be weighing on him. He's yeah. been one of the best golfers in the world. Everyone was predicting he was going to get 10, 11, 12 majors. He's been stuck on four. He's never won the Masters, and he hasn't won a major in eight 
years, despite That's leading. Shocking. It's shocking for a player of his greatness to not have won a major in eight years. I'm still carried, you know, asking about the momentum here, and, and which is in the moment when when uh, Cade says they bet it. Are they betting against it? Because usually the price, the markets tend to over overprice in momentum. That's, that's and so a, do they bet it backwards? I mean, what are they doing? Oh, that's a great question. If you were to model the market, does this show even more non-stationarity? I, that's a question for Rufus that I don't know. And because always, you know, it's always uh, you know your model versus the market's price, and it's fair. It's a fair question. Uh, all I know is that the that their models, which are trying to accurately give the most likely, include a fair bit of non-stationarity. All right, guys, how about we wrap there for Q1? We've still got three quarters ahead of us. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics on SiriusXM. Associate producer Dion Simpkins bringing us into the second quarter. Such a pleasure to be in the studio for so many reasons, including we get Dion's music live. We get Dion's whatever his vibe is at the bottom of the hour. We learn. Good fun. Many thanks always to Dion Simpkins. This is Kate Massey. The whole crew is in here. We're in the studio. We're in the business radio studios here in the first floor of Huntsman Hall, looking out onto Locust Walk. We were here for years and years and years before the pandemic scattered us and sent us to Zoom every now and then. We're back in here again. You guys can jump in here. We'd love it when you reach out to us. At W Moneyball on Twitter is a handy way to reach reach us. At W Moneyball. We follow our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. And we love hearing from you guys, whatever you got. You can also send us email. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything you send us, and we love hearing from you. We try to get as much of it on the air as possible. Rolling into the second quarter now, Q2 and Q3 are our interview segments. Again, the the heart of the show this week, Ed Fang. It has been a few years since we've had Ed on the show, but he's been on multiple times, I believe. Ed is the founder of the Power Rank. He is a stats PhD from Stanford. How do you know anything about that school? Not a few things. Ed, Ed's been running the power rank for a number of years now. You probably go there for football more often than not, but he does get himself into basketball. He's got great models, and he's got great visualizations. He's got probably my favorite March Madness visualization out there, and we always enjoy the chance to talk with Ed. Ed, good afternoon to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. It was an honor seeing you in Boston not too recently, and uh, it was more of an honor, I believe, to get the very first <laughs> Wharton Moneyball baseball. That's uh, right. So this is a permanent fixture on my desk now. That was fun, Ed. Absolutely. Uh, so we had those things produced, you know, probably in the six months prior to the pandemic. I think we were going to go to Sloan in 2020. Oh, wow. We had them ready to go. We got the, we, we had some cheapies that were made. We got some high-quality ones that were made. We're like, come on, let's just go with the high-qualities. And then they've been sitting there waiting to go somewhere. And you, sir, did receive the first one we passed. Got number out. one out of the box. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to keep handing them out for a couple of years, and then we're going to do a signing at Sloan where we just sign the ball. <laughs> everybody, everybody bring their original we should Moneyball have, ball. We should have numbered I, I will be there. I will be there. <laughs> we should yeah, my only regret it. was not being able to say hi in person to Shane and Adi. Uh, I saw you guys at the bar there. Never quite happened. Never happened. They're probably because they were so mobbed. 
You know, they're just you know, I sat, to, I sat to down to and, 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 at the talks with 2,000 people, and the guy turns to me and says, oh, I listened to you on the radio. That was su- such <laughs> a great really moment. really nice. Yep. Yeah, if there's any place we can be sure somebody knows this, it would be the Sloan Conference. Um, listen, man, great to see you. Uh, I'm assuming that you're in the Ann Arbor area. Is that right? And what is this setup I you've am- got there? We see a Stanford helmet in the background, but you, you almost look like you're in a gym. In a gym. Interesting. No, this is my basement. This is my podcast setup. All right. Uh, I'd like to l- let everyone know where my site is. So there's the sign up there. Um, that three back there, that is actually a part of the old Stanford Stadium before they destroyed it. Oh. So I was there. I believe the last game was against Notre Dame. I was not capable of figuring it out, but someone else uh, was able to rip off part of the edge of uh, – <laughs> Of, of a bleacher, essentially. Yeah. And I've had that ever since. Stanford PhD and students vandalizing the stadium. To doing take... your part to take it down. Saving the construction crews crew a little help. Exactly. Exactly. I think the construction crew was there. Like, the game ended. The crew was there. <laughs> it was almost encouraging to, to uh, you know, uh, PhD students to to vandalize an old stadium. I it was see. kind of a... Well, you, yeah, you, you did was... need to work out some pent-up hostility. You've just been sitting in labs, crunching numbers. you got to do something, something to feel alive. Ed, exactly. let's talk about March Madness, but give us the story on how you got there. I think of you as doing – so you, you, you produce models. You produce a newsletter. You're trying to find people edges in the sports betting world. How did you – and when did you start doing March Madness stuff? I think pretty early on you did some stuff there, and it's always been in your portfolio, yes? But where did it come from? Yeah, it's always been in, in my portfolio, but I mean, to take it back to the the very earliest days, um, what I was able to do was take my PhD in applied math and turn it into an algorithm that adjusts for strength of schedule. And I, I would still say my expertise is in algorithms that adjust for strength of schedule, and that turns out to be pretty useful in sports. When I was first doing this, uh, I first started messing around with some NFL data. And then later during that football season, this might have been like 2008, 2009, uh, I started messing with college football. And you could kind of tell the difference that this was going to be really useful in college football just because of the differing strength of schedules. Right. And um, so we get into February, March, and I was talking to some people about how to kind of grow this idea. And they're like, oh, you should do college basketball. And I was like, nah, I'm not going to do that, man. Ken Pomeroy is already a pretty big person in the space and i just you know i was like i need to be different right i need to do something kind of different and they they sat me down like no march madness (laughs) is such a big deal you need to do it and i was like all right fine i mean i've always been a big march madness fan and so i started doing college basketball calculations pretty sure this was 2010 and yeah it just kind of grew from there um it it's interesting the majority of my business is football so doing NFL and college football analytics. Uh, but it turns out that March is just a huge part of that business in terms of drawing attention. Like I can draw attention in this week in a way that I can never do during football right, season. Right. So it's been pretty part, important in terms of marketing. And then I've also feel like I've been able to, you know, Ken is still the man when it comes to college basketball analytics. Um, but I've been able to dig into the, 
the how to win your pool aspect of it, which mm-hmm. certainly involves analytics, but uh, there's some strategy on top of that that you need to know as well. Well, why don't we why don't we dig into some of that? So we want we want to talk about the basketball as well and the teams, and you've got models and you talk to all these guys. You have a podcast where you shift this time of year from talking about football to talking about basketball, and you've had some great stuff out lately. So you're talking to folks in this space. You're getting insights about the teams and the regions, and so we want to get that. But let's start with this strategy because. Uh, you know, a lot of people are dropping brackets into various competitions this week. And let's just recap. And these guys, you know, these these guys have positions and these guys have brackets. Let's recap your top tips for people on strategy for March Madness pools. For sure. I mean, the first thing to know is your success rate depends on how big your pool is, right? So every additional person, no matter how dumb they are, has a chance of getting lucky. They have a chance of picking some crazy Final Four that that is never going to happen, like a little oil over Chicago in 2018. And when you know when you run the models, when I've, I've uh, you know the one thing I did in my book about how to win your NCAA tournament pool was I was actually able to put some numbers behind us. I was actually able to simulate pools, uh, taking data from the public distributions that you can get on ESPN and other places, and. You know, not surprisingly to you guys, like your probability winning a pool decreases exponentially with pool size. So if you're in a winner take all type pool, you don't want to be in any pool larger than 100. And then also when you are in pools that are less than 100, the strategy kind of shifts uh, between your super small pools, maybe 10 or 20 or less. And then that intermediate range uh, between 20 and 100. And that's what I really dig into in my book. You can usually you can mostly use chalk for those small pools uh, because you're, you're uh, chalk. I mean, whether it's by seed, whether it's by the higher ranked team in in my numbers uh, or anyone else that does good college basketball analytics, you can just pick the favorites. That's kind of your optimal strategy, and you're going to put yourself in a pretty good chance to win against Joe Average in the public. When you get to that intermediate size, that's when you can actually increase your odds by. Uh, by picking against the public. So if a lot of people in the public are picking one team as champion, you can kind of think contrarian, pick a different team that still has a good win probability, uh, but is not getting picked by as many people as, uh, as not being picked as by other people as much. Ed, real quickly. And, and we can talk about the specifics there. So you have one is picking against the public. The other is just picking bald underdogs to crank up your variance. How do you think about which of those two things to dial up and how aggressively? Yeah, I've found that I, I really, when, when you calculate the win probability and you take this contrarian strategy and say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to find a bunch of final four contrarian choices. What I found was that didn't change my win probability too much uh it it i I didn't see any change in it the idea there is that you know when when you're taking a contrarian champion that's worth 32 points that's such a huge uh amount of points in your pool that really affects your win probability final four choice that's eight points it's not quite as much it doesn't affect the probability as much so i really recommend thinking about who to pick as champion in your pool and me personally, I leave everything up to chalk and, and numbers in the earlier rounds. Hold on, just let me. I want to capture that real quick. But I don't want to run past it because it's counter to my intuition. But it's because of the points you're saying, chalk early, contrarian late. I would have almost gone the other way around. You're saying in your simulations, your understanding of it, based on the typical point distributions, chalk early, 
because you're not really gaining that much on points by picking invariant there. And then right. go and roll the dice late in order to stack up the points late. Okay. No, no, I'm saying either way. I wasn't, it wasn't my question, but that's actually what I do. I do almost chalk to the sweet 16. And then I, I pick, like, let's say maybe a five seed to be a one seed. But let me ask you two questions. Let me start with the first one. Do you ever pick a bracket according to, let's say, your model, Ed, or possibly rankings? And then all of a sudden you say, all right, I don't have enough upsets here. Do you use kind of like what I'll call the marginal distribution of other factors? Like, you know that there's not going to be four number ones. But if you just pick each game individually, you might get that. You, you know, they've always had this statistic, which I love, which is the total seed of the top four teams that make it. And a lot of years it's like 14, 16. Like, and you look at yours like, oh, my God, it's five. Like, that's not <laughs> enough. Do you ever do like this kind of – I'll call it forward filtering, backward filtering and when you do picks? I personally don't. I, I feel like it's, it's trying to find signal in noise. Uh, I feel like, uh, I don't know what's a good example from, from past years. Um, you know, just the, just the late seeds that do end up making it to the Final Four. Sure, it does happen, but, you know, how often can you predict it? Um, I think it's difficult, if not impossible, to do that. I have no problem at all if the total number of my Final Four seeds adds up to, I believe, Seven this year. Okay. No, six. Okay. So, Ed, yeah, I, have a, I, have a, I think that gives you the highest odds. I have a question. Uh, I've been pondering a sort of a, a variant on the on the uh, the bracket selection. Imagining this time you have the opportunity to pick more than one bracket, and your competitors are putting as many as they want as well. So, imagine everyone pays a dollar for their bracket, and maybe there's already ten million brackets in there. What's the strategy that you would use to win this pool, and and how would you go about it? Have you thought about this? Because because I have, and I we have, I have some some questions I'd potentially want to run by you. For sure, I mean I I haven't actually run the math behind it because I don't I don't that's not maybe a realistic thing for people like my customers. But if you did want to win the ESPN pool, right? You know, I mean you're going to have to take a lot of risks, right? You're going to have to hope it's one of those years where. I don't know. I'm looking at the bracket. Well, the ESPN now. pool just... is free, so you, you everyone you sure. can enter as many times. But it's it's not really set up to enter a lot of times. So imagine this is a a, a, a big pool where everybody's paying a dollar each, and you can do as many sure. as you want. And obviously, you have some right. automation strategy. So to you're do you're that. really kind of talking about constructing a portfolio, portfolio of, brackets of brackets. That's where right. you're right. trying to obviously have highly probable ones, but somehow there should be maybe some aspect Somewhat of orthogonal yeah. to each other That's or right. like you, you not, win not you, on top, right wanna, on top of each and other. And you want to win it with the best return on your investment. So imagine there's 10 million right. others out there and you need to try to get as many in there. Obviously, if you go with 10 million, you have a, you're going to win with a decent probability. But which part of the question are you more interested in? Actual number given the I, cost I, or really the strategy of how Well, that... there's two questions. There's the optimal strategy. And yeah. the second is, how many brackets do you think you need to enter before you have a better than 50% chance? <laughs> oh, my God. And that's the question we actually do have an answer to, but under, oh a, certain, uh, under a certain set of That's such an academic kind of I know, I know. Right? It's a the, great question. No, no, no. It's an interesting academic question. Let's do the first <laughs> question, which is more relevant to the betters, is what's the right strategy? Like Shane's version of it is, what's the right thing to hold constant while the other thing is – what do you hold constant? What do, what do you permute? Or maybe you don't hold anything constant. How much do you hold constant? How much do you permute? And which is which? Yeah. For sure. I mean, I. So, A, I don't have the answer to that question. Like, how, how many. We'll go with your intuition. You Ed Fang's cool, PhD intuition. Part B, I do have the code to actually test this. So, maybe, <laughs> maybe we can sit down next February and, and think about these things. Um, I think. Okay, let's let's just say like there's there's uh, ten thousand people in the pool, 
right? And you can buy as there's roughly that order of magnitude, and and you want to put in as many brackets with differing, presumably differing, presumably uh, differing, yes, uh, presumably different. Like you want to cover the space of possibilities in a realistic way that gives you the highest chance. What you know? What do you need to do to get to fifty percent? No, 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 no. That's the academic that's a lot thing. Of we just want like, that's well, a lot no, of but the question is, if you can do it with a thousand, that's enormously profitable. Yeah, exactly. I, I want no one, yeah, no sure. one, the, the the six people in the country that are going to submit a thousand are not listening to our show. What what about the folks who just want to put in a second or a third or a fourth right. to some modest size pool and they want to right. maximize their chances? Yeah, yeah. Like you have your best bracket, and now you're like told you could, you, you should, you want to enter another one. How do you go from that best bracket? To the, to your, the next bracket. Well, your next bracket, you know, you could imagine like you, very small permutations of your best bracket are going to can keep the probability relatively high. But of course, that very small permutations does not cover as much space. So I think that's the real kind of trade off that's so interesting. My, my, ga- my PhD intuition would say the following you should bucket games into ones you consider, let's call them certain whatever that means then a bunch of ones that are in that call it middle zone and you should permute the ones in the middle zone and but you have to go backward you have to go from the first round forward that way because you want to be internally consistent but that would be my strategy that's my intuition tells me that's the right strategy there's some that you're not going to take you don't want pure orthogonality if you really believe these 20 games are out of the 63 are almost certain here you want to stay with those here's my question are you thinking only about what you're doing or what the opponents are doing and, well, and we're talking about a power mutual payout system where I have to share. I just want to win myself. What do I care if no, somebody else No, there's not going to be a share it? because there's only one. It's the best. It, it's, it's only going to be the best here. It's not like a. Not oh, like that's going to be a share. You're not but talking no, but, about a perfect. But I'm You're kinda, talking about just winning. Yeah, okay. we want to win. But do you have to think about like when we when I've been working on this problem and the hardest part as to is, is been modeling what the public does because I don't know that right. Yeah. Oh my. So <laughs> that is really 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 hard. Um, I, I actually went through a couple false starts with modeling the public based on the um, based on what you can get from ESPN. Uh, I actually would love to talk to you personally about some of those details. I don't <laughs> think I have it right. I have it good enough, um, and I, and I think I think that's where you have to start. You have to start with a model of the public that's saying like I'm going to pick a bracket at random from ESPN, and how can I how can I best estimate that probability from the data that they show, which is obviously not the data on every single bracket, but the general probabilities that they display on that page, mm-hmm. right? The probability of, you know, for instance, Alabama, how, how many, how often are they picked in each, uh, through each round, you can see those probabilities, right? Um, right. So, so that, that is hard. Um, I, I, uh, that's actually, uh, you know, I, I finished my PhD a while ago. That was an opportunity for me to, uh, get back in touch with my PhD advisor, maybe about like five or six years ago. That was a lot of fun because he is honestly the grandmaster of algorithms. Who was your advisor? Uh, His name was Hans Anderson. He was a chemistry professor at Stanford, uh, was really famous for developing algorithms for the simulation of liquids, uh, a lot of Monte Carlo stuff as well. Um, So, yeah, yeah, an excellent... Great experience working with him, um, but that but that was an interesting experience talking to him, pitching those ideas. I think I have a somewhat of a, a grasp of that. Not that I remember everything of, of what I did because it was five or six years ago when I last touched that up. But yeah, actually, let's go back to kind of that strategy that like Eric was talking about. Like you know, there's some certainty, right? So we're not going to be picking a lot of sixteen over ones if we want to optimize the set of pools. 
for sure. And then, you know, speaking of this particular tournament, you know, you you would I I would suspect that you would want a wide range of outcomes out of the East region. The East region is, you know, we talk about the group of death in the World Cup. This is the region of eternal life. Um, <laughs> I think you can argue that there's not a single top 10 team in this region. Jeez. A lot of the metrics say that Purdue is the top team. And it's kind of agonizing because when you do kind of the simple analysis that I do for, for people who are filling out brackets and you take the the higher ranked team in every single game, you still agonizingly get Purdue coming out of there. I honestly do not expect Purdue to come out of that region. There are a lot of good teams. Um, well, <laughs> they're not a lot of good teams. <laughs> there are a lot of potentially high ceiling teams that have not performed as I well. See. Uh, Duke, a Kentucky. There's a Tennessee team that has really dropped off recently. They were supposed to be on the one line as of a couple weeks ago. They're on the four line, probably divert, deservedly so. You have a Marquette team that's insanely overseeded. You have a Kansas State team that's insanely <laughs> overseated. I mean, it just kind of goes on and okay, on hold in this hold region. On. Ed, but I want to ask you about Purdue. So, how do you feel about the the, the shot quality guys and the whole? They they rank teams by basically the quality of shots that they take or they rank defenses by the mm-hmm. quality of shots that they force opponents to take. And they've been claiming lately that they, you know, they're really expensive, so you can't get into their stuff. But their Twitter feed is like, you know, the top shot quality guys from the last seven years have either won the thing or made the finals. The top quality sure. defenses have made the final four. They're really pumping it out there. And that's Purdue? And number one is Purdue this year. And, and, and you can look at it because if you look at their shot chart, we just retweeted a, 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 a bunch of shot charts for each region, which is really interesting because they vary a lot. And Purdue's shot chart is all three-point line or right at the bucket. So in terms mm-hmm. of just algorithmically, you'd love to have those higher probability or higher expected value shots, and they're hitting a high yeah. percentage of them. Alabama, same thing. You know, famously, philosophically, same thing. And then they crank up the volume, of course, because if you're getting an edge every trip down the court, you want as many trips down the court as possible. So but whenever you so I'm curious how you feel about that whole line of thinking and how important it might be for the tournament, especially since you're saying eh, I'm not really buying Purdue. For sure, I mean there's there's so many good ideas in their decade. Uh, first of all, it's obviously good to have shots at the rim and, and take a lot of threes when you have seven foot four inch Zach Eady. You 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 have the personnel to take advantage of that. Yep. Am I? I'm not really surprised that that Purdue is particularly good at shot quality. I mean this so. I think Edie's a great player. Uh, I'm not sure about any of his supporting cast in terms of the talent, in terms of future NBA potential, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I feel like if, if Edie's not taking a shot, they're they're going to a fre- freshman like Fletcher Lawyer to, to take a shot, and he's been remarkably inefficient this year. But on, so kind of given that lack of time, like they're clearly well coached, right? So they're clearly well coached in the sense that they're going to either both create good shots, maybe from the three, but on defense – uh, you know, limit good shots, right? They're well coached, um, and and I and I guess I believe that. Uh, but then you know what happens when does does that go out the window when in the round of thirty two you're playing a Memphis team that's going to be athletic and going to try to out jump you? Yep, yep. I don't know. I don't know the answer. Is to that. the shot um, quality metric uh, adjusted for the nearest defender, or is it just the location on the court that you shot from? I think it's just location of the court. But I don't know that. Oh, really? Oh, sounds like it's unadjusted. 
Yeah, so, I want that, at least where the defense is, right? Okay, I don't. I, 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 these, these guys are too expensive for me, so I can't say for sure what's going on with them. But um, that's fair. That'd be the that'd be the next generation. It's like the normal thing we do with expected value. Ed, we're down to just a couple of minutes. Can you give us a few plays in in Mar- Who do you like? I know you're short Tennessee. I love I love that yep. you're short Tennessee because you know I, I I pulled for a Rick Barnes tournament team for many years and it wasn't a very satisfying experience. Give us some other plays for the March Madness tournament. So coming into the weekend, I I really love the idea of Gonzaga being a dark horse. This is a team that can absolutely score the ball. Uh, Mark Few offenses are just they're just so nice to watch because they push the ball up the court, they share the ball, they get great shots. And Drew Timmy is an amazingly efficient player. They have all kinds of weaknesses on the defensive side of the ball. But I was willing to kind of forget that. Um, Anyways, I kind of like them. But now they're in the region of death. The West is the region of death. I mean, you have UConn, you have Kansas, you have a pretty good UCLA team. Uh, It's it's really hard. So I I still kind of like Gonzaga, but not as much as, I mean, put them in the East and it it would be a no-brainer. Okay. You haven't said anything about one region. We've talked a little bit about the East, the Midwest. Who do you like out of the Midwest? Houston? Everyone loves Houston. Yeah. So we should Yeah, I I like Houston. I see Houston and Alabama as the co-favorites. Most of the year, I would have told you Houston is definitively the favorite, but I I put them as co-favorites. They are in what I would term well-seeded brackets, right? Like the top you know, the top team is the first seed. The a team in the top ten is the I second see. seed. So on and yeah. so forth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I expect both Houston and Alabama to to make it out of there, and I consider them co-favorites. Okay. All right. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun, Ed. It's good to talk with you. Glad to hear about your work. You guys can follow more from Ed on the Power Rank. He's got a website, thepowerrank.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at the same handle, the Power Rank. Always fun to talk to Ed Fink. Thank you, guys, so much. That has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Business Daily on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports and statistics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host today, Shane Jensen. As everyone knows, some combination of the two of us and Cade Massey and Adi Weiner are here every week on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, one of the, Shane, I think we all agree, one of the great things about Wharton Moneyball over the last almost nine years coming up is that we have guests on that live and breathe all the stuff and analytics that we just part-time kind of talk about here. And Brad, Spielger, Brad Spielberger, who's uh, returning to the show, is no exception. So for those people that don't know, Brad works with R&D as an, and as a salary cap analyst for PFF, Pro Football Focus. He's also a contributor to OverTheCap.com. So, Brad, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm glad uh, my first appearance didn't uh, preclude a second one. Nope, definitely not. And this is obviously, you know, there's lots of stuff going on in sports right now, but clearly this is a big, big time in the NFL. So, as I said to our fans, uh, you're a salary cap analyst for PFF. Why don't we just start with the basics, because many of us, and maybe Shane and I don't even know all the details. Can you tell us what is the structure of the NFL salary cap? So let's start with that, because we know some sports have hard caps, some sports have soft caps, all sports seem to have some form of exemptions, you can spread stuff over years. So can you give us a summary of how it works in the NFL? 
Yeah, I think it's technically deemed as a hard salary cap, but because that last thing you mentioned, the ability to spread money over up to five years, I think makes it a bit of a softer cap than some other leagues where you can't move money around as easily. Um, So like I said, everything can be spread over five years. If you convert money into a bonus, whether it's a signing bonus, option bonus, or other types of bonuses, you can then prorate that money in an even amount up to five years. So that's how it seems like the New Orleans Saints and Philadelphia Eagles and some of these teams that everyone's always wondering, how are they doing this? How are they signing all these players? It's basically a credit card, and they're just pushing these salary cap hits down the road over and over again. Eventually, that bill comes due, um, but with the cap raising by 6 to 8% every offseason, of course, unless we get a pandemic, um, you know, you can kind of, you can kind of, you know, let that, those excess charges kind of eat into that growth and, and get away with it for a long time. So what is the actual salary cap? Is it something I'm making it up? It's like 180 million somewhere in that. Am I close? What is the actual number? So the salary cap for 2023 is $224.8 million. That was recently announced, um, you know, the highest ever, about an 8% growth from last year um, and probably should spike because we still haven't really seen, you know, the 17th game money, the new TV deals that were recently signed, obviously gambling revenues, all those things. Um, it could, could take an even bigger jump maybe next year. So just to, you know, obviously the biggest uh, expenditure for most teams in the salary cap is, of course, the quarterback. And so, obviously, when a quarterback warrants potentially 35, 40, 40 million plus, maybe even I think uh, uh, Aaron Rodgers, I think, was it 62 million next year? That's obviously 25 to 30 percent of the salary cap. So, can you talk about how you view the quarterback market? Are we now in a time where it's just like the reality is every, and that's by the way, just the starting quarterback, forget the backup quarterback, and some team even carries three quarterbacks. But are we basically in an era where every team has to have an expectation of 40 to 50 million for their quarterbacks? Or, or as we know, the draft. Getting quarterbacks with the draft is a cheaper way to do it. How do you see the quarterbacks and their role in the salary cap? Yeah, so the interesting thing is if you look at just absolute values, you can make an argument a guy like Patrick Mahomes probably should get paid $100 million a year. But, you know, the issue, I think the biggest constraint right now and the reason why those draft pick players are so valuable and provide so much surplus value is we like to joke with us cap nerds. Like there's no such thing as a mid tier market. I mean, we see now Daniel Jones coming off a 15 touchdown pass season signs a four year, $160 million deal with incentives that could push that up to 195 million over four years. Um, You know, I haven't seen the guarantee structure yet, but that is the issue is that, you know, I mean, Geno Smith yesterday is probably the best example we've had in several years where the base value of his deal is three years, 75 million. That is a true mid-market deal. They are so, so rare to find. And I guess the only time you can find them is you have a guy who hasn't played in eight years uh, that finds his way back to a starting role somehow. Um, but yes, the long answer short, that is why you hear all this talk about the most valuable asset in the NFL is a good quarterback on a rookie deal because then you can spend at every other position on your roster. With, with an expensive quarterback, you kind of can't. Well, let's let's talk about that. So like, where do you see, Since let's stay with the mid-tier for a second since you brought that up. Where do you see guys like Jimmy Garoppolo? Where do you see guys like Baker Mayfield? Maybe you don't have them in the same tier, but to me, I have no great evidence, just my own from the analytics, that they're so much better than Geno Smith. I mean, how much money do you think they're going to warrant? Are they going to be the $40 million people? Are they going to be closer to the 10 to $15 million rookie package? Are they going to be somewhere in between? How do you see it? 
Yeah, I think Garoppolo is going to fall maybe in that 10 to 15 range. I think Baker Mayfield probably in like the 7 to 10 range. Um, You know, I'd put them as like the high-level backups. Like you said, it's funny. It's still a big number, right? That's still, you know, starting money for for a lot of positions across the NFL. But, um, you know, that's still probably a bit of a constraint just having to have. And I think more and more teams realize the value in a quality backup quarterback, whether that's because of injury or like in Jalen Hurts' case in, in, in Philadelphia, you just you're starting to have some doubts about your guy and you want to have a backup plan in place. So. I find those guys in those range not going to get the, quite the Geno Smith money, um, but still, uh, I mean, you know, even getting a cheap rookie backup like a Brock Purdy, you know, that you're paying about, you know, what a one or two million dollars a year, there's still a ton of surplus value compared to that veteran guy with him. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it speaks to also signing your veterans, you know, when you know, uh, right when they're on the kind of cusp of knowing how good they're going to be. I mean, I know that's kind of a a guessing game for every team. And I guess the New York Giants have made a guess at Daniel Jones, for example. But I I guess let me let me let me put that statement in terms of a, a, a prospective question. Where do you kind of see with the inflation, everything else? Do you see the kind of cap going in such a way that how many years are we from Patrick Mahomes' deal, which I guess is probably the second highest right now among QBs in terms of annual value? When when does he does he fall into the bottom half by the time his deal is over? Yeah, he's already right now. Uh, he is fifth, actually. So he, he's forty five million dollars a year. You have Kyler Murray, Deshaun Watson, Aaron Rodgers, and Russell Wilson are all ahead of him. And then I think you're going to get probably Jalen Hurts, Joe Burrow, and Justin Herbert all signing for more than that forty five million dollars a year this offseason. So I do think there's a decent chance Mahomes goes back to the table and says, "Hey, we got to we got to redo this thing," which I know sounds crazy because he has about a decade left on his extension, but. You know, that's the thing, too, is a lot of this is funny money and you can move things around. But I think the, the larger part of your question, too, is I had a conversation with, with a cap or a cap guy at a team a couple of weeks ago. And he said the quarterback market growth is now exceeding the salary cap growth where they used to be closer to the same. And now it's surpassed it. And he thinks at a certain point, there could be an inflection point where it's untenable. But I think, like I said at the top, like. You know, I used to use LeBron James in this example. LeBron James could take up the entire salary cap himself if he wanted to, right? And so Mahomes is kind of in that conversation as well. But he does think there will be an inflection point where maybe it levels off a little bit in you know the next three or four years. So we're here talking to Brad Spielberger. Brad works as a salary cap analyst for Pro Football Focus. You can also uh, read his material on OverTheCap.com. Let me just follow up with Shane's question for a second. Um I, I posited this a couple of weeks ago, even for the Eagles, but maybe you could tell me, Brad, if I'm out of my analytics mind here. So why doesn't every team do the following? By the third or fourth year of a rookie deal, let's assuming, by the way, you draft the person in the first round, because you know that affects the number of years in which you have them under contract. Um, why doesn't every team, why don't the Eagles right now draft a quarterback? They've got two picks. They can trade up. Maybe Jalen Hurts is the next Tom Brady. Maybe he's the next Aaron Rodgers. Maybe he's the next Patrick Mahomes. Or maybe he's hit his ceiling. And you know what? It's not that that's not a great ceiling, but Jalen Hurts at $50 million a year or uh, one of the top four or five guys currently on the rookie class that are going to be drafted at $10 million a year. Maybe that is, is that a ridiculous way of thinking that once you have a Jalen Hurts, of course you sign him. It's not obvious to me. So we've had this conversation going back for years now that, I mean, in a lot of ways, if you look at it from a pure, just like mathematics standpoint, or or just really just focusing on maximizing the value of what you have at that spot, 
teams should take that risk and, and be willing to go back to the well. But I think a lot of other factors and intangible things like, I mean, frankly, I think we do need to realize the GM keeping his job is should factor into our analysis, whether we like that or not. I mean, the guy is going to protect himself. And so there are kind of perverse incentives between what he wants to do or what he thinks he can get away with from, with a, from an optics standpoint and always trying to be closer to winning a title every single year. So that is a big part of it. But, you know, the Arizona Cardinals a couple of years ago, I think, did a great job and deserve, you know, a, a lot of acclaim for you take Josh Rosen 10th overall, you trade up to get him. And then one year later, you say, you know what? He's not the guy. Let's go get Kyler Murray at first overall. So I think those things are maybe going to happen. But at the end of the day, it's it's about locker room management and, and optics. And, hey, if I do this and I miss on the prospect and he stinks, I'm getting fired. Um, I think that's the reason. Not that that's a smart, you know, again, mathematical approach, but you get why that is the situation. Well, let me ask you a question about that. And then I know Shane wanted to jump in as well. Let me ask you a question. Um, I'm trying to think back, except for Matthew Stafford, who was on the Lions for obviously a, lo- a large number of years, maybe 11, 12 years, and then went to the Rams. When is the last time a, a quarterback did, went to his first Super Bowl in like his seventh, eighth, ninth, or tenth year? Like, I'm just trying to think about quarterbacks that went to their first Super Bowl. So maybe you have enough. Maybe I've got it wrong. I, I can think of Matthew Stafford. I'm not sure who the one is before that. Maybe you can come up with that immediately. Kurt Warner, maybe. I, How long you did think Peyton Tate to actually make it to the Super Bowl? He might have been in his it was 2006, and he was first. drafted in. And I mean, John Elway, I think before. No, no, I was going to say Elway. No, no, I've got examples. I've got examples, but you're back. You're back 35 years ago. I was thinking of Elway, absolutely. And by the way, but let's remember, Elway went to five, so his first team that he went to early ones that he lost as well. That he lost. I didn't say win. I said went to a Super Bowl. So maybe Brad, like five years, should be our horizon on every quarterback, unless you hit the lottery and you get Mahomes or Rodgers or Brady or or one of these all time greats. Just recycle quarterbacks every five years. And by the way, people have talked about, well, what about the attitude of the quarterback? Well, you know what? Maybe that's we're in a new world where if if the $50 $50 million is the price for the second contract. Maybe quarterbacks have to prove themselves that they're worth $50 million in that first five years. Oh, look, I, I could not agree more. I think another big thing, too, is we always talk about, oh, you don't want to shatter the confidence of the quarterback. Look, these guys are competing in college just like every other position where you're getting a new five-star recruit that comes in and is the shiny new toy that everyone wants to talk about. And a lot of times, talking about Jalen Hurts, talking about guys that the competition comes in, Joe Burrow, Justin Fields, and elevates their game and actually pushes them to greater heights. And then for some reason, you get to the NFL and you got to coddle the guy and you can't give him anything to shake his confidence. Hey, if your confidence is shaken by a new guy coming in, maybe you're not the guy to begin with. I think we will eventually get there. I just think it would have to be with a very entrenched general manager that feels he has long-term job security, can take that risk. Um, but look, I, I agree with and echo a lot of the sentiments you're, you're, you're spouting right now. Yeah, I, I guess I want to kind of uh, basically follow up on something you said earlier when you were talking about the quarterback, specifically kind of the quarterback share or the, the, the quarterback inflation being higher than the actual inflation of the salary cap. Obviously, not all positions can do that. <laughs> you need you know, that that's one where, you know, you're, you're going to have some positions losing out at, with regards to others. And so. How do you kind of see that sort of position, you know, proportion by position going in the future? Because I also feel like, I mean, you could tell me whether wide receivers are also kind of increasing in excess of the actual overall cap. And if, if, if both those very high position players are, what's, you know, what's being sacrificed? 
to to kind of roll on on the team. Right, there's always a give and take, right? So the way we look at it is the average annual value as a percent of the salary cap at signing, right? So if you sign for $10 million a year on a $200 million cap, and then a couple of years down the road, you know, you sign for $12 million, but the cap has jumped to $300 million, you are signing for less in our eyes, and your position is being devalued. And so we have seen that. So yes, quarterback continues to exceed that route. Wide receiver right now is certainly in this new market and pushing to new heights. The, the sacrifice has been running backs. You know, it, it's really, you know, they, they've been hit. I mean, Christian McCaffrey is the top contract on the market and he signed it in 2019. And I don't think anyone's going to surpass him anytime soon either. So, well, if it was, we just, we, we just saw from our producer that the Giants uh, franchise tag Saquon Barkley. If there ever was going to be someone, now look, I would never give any running back a five year deal, especially given what we've just seen happen to Zeke Elliott. But, you know, who's 28, not 32, he's 28, and in my view, totally done. Um, and there's no reason to give a running back a five-year deal, but I think you're right. Running backs, certainly, there is a ceiling on running backs. Oh, and it's, and it's already been realized. Where the top guys now are signing for $12, $13 million. I think if Josh Jacobs and Saquon Barkley did hit the market, they maybe get 13 14 but they're still not going to get that Ezekiel Elliott or Christian McCaffrey-level money. So, They've probably been the biggest one. Um, I think off-ball linebacker, yes, there's been a couple deals recently that have been strong, like Roquan Smith and Darius Leonard and Fred Warner, but that used to be one of the you know the marquee positions in football, and it's not really viewed that way anymore. I think it's to be an outlier-level player. You go look at the list of top guys, it's kind of those three, C.J. Mosley in New York, and it falls off a cliff to like 12, 13 million per year. Um, there's not a gradual, you know, you know, flow there at that position. So I think, that, you know, kind of the old school positions we used to think of have kind of taken a hit. And in today's NFL, if you if you are a passer, if you impact the passing game on offense or defense, you're going to get paid. Well, before we leave the quarterback position, Mike, we've got a ton of other questions for you. Let's talk about the Lamar Jackson situation. I mean, it's well, it's now past 4 p.m. Eastern here on Tuesday. Um, as maybe they franchise tagged him. I don't know. Um, they must have done something. They're not just going to let him go. Um, what do you think is going to happen there? Because, you know, now we've obviously got the Deshaun Watson situation where everyone's looking for two hundred plus million dollars in guaranteed money. Forget the length, as you said, the length of the contract's almost funny money because they're just going to, you know, if they could sign you to a 50 year contract like Bobby Bonilla Day. Trust me, the NFL owners would do it. If they could spread the money over 50 years, they would do it. What do you think is going to happen with Lamar Jackson? And also, I, I was listening to sports talk radio coming home today and I realized something. I didn't realize he was his own agent. So what do you do there when you're negotiating with somebody who's their own agent? What do you think is going to happen in Baltimore? Yeah, so I, I was frankly shocked by the the use of the non-exclusive franchise tag. Oh, they today. did the so non-exclusive one on they them? They did. They oh, did, oh, yeah. Oh. So for folks that don't know, you know, basically the non-exclusive, other teams can sign that player to an offer sheet. And if the original team does not match that offer sheet, then they get two first-round picks in return. If you use the exclusive tag, the player cannot negotiate with other teams. So Really, it's only a quarterback thing. At other other positions, you're just going to use the non-exclusive. And the two first-round picks and the contract are usually enough of a deterrent to not let that happen. But with Baltimore, they clearly, and now it ties into your second part of the question, it's been tough to get Lamar to the table to have a back-and-forth. It sounds like he basically just points to the Sean Watson contract and says, I want $230 million fully guaranteed at signing or more. And here's how you know unprecedented that is. The second highest ever fully guarantee at signing is $101.5 million. So Watson gets more than twice that in a completely unprecedented situation. 
And I think every team, you know, is afraid to follow that route. But now if you're a desperate team that has been trying to get a quarterback and trying to figure things out like the Cleveland Browns were, maybe you do sign him to an offer sheet of that value. And two first round picks is really not all that much to give up for Lamar Jackson. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with you, but I view it a different way. Like, I think this is a great plan by the Ravens. I think they will understand what the market value is when does everybody follow the, as you said, Brad, the Deshaun uh, Watson situation. Like, is somebody else actually going to give him $200 million? Or it'll everything will reveal itself, and now uh, uh, Lamar Jackson will realize, you know what? Forget that contract. That's never happening again. A hundred million is guaranteed. Someone's going to offer you that. We'll be happy to give you that. So I, I think, and by the way, I know it doesn't seem odd for uh, Lamar Jackson, but two first rounders is not bad, depending on which team it is. As we know, the real trade value, and this is my question to you. I know, you know, obviously one of our hosts, Cade Massey, has done a lot of work on the draft and the overconfidence and people way overvalue the top picks in the draft. What do you think, like, like you even just said, I'd like a reaction that two first rounders for Lamar Jackson doesn't sound like that much. I mean, do you think he'd be four first rounders on the open market if there was an actual trade? Like what is his trade value in your view? Yeah. So the interesting thing there is you're actually not allowed to trade more than three years into the future until draft day. And then on the day of the draft, you can trade up to four years. So, you know, it's obviously there, there are some teams that have multiple first round picks and this year or next year, they could do that. But if you have just your standard allotment, the most you can give is three. Um, like I said, until draft day, kind of a weird quirk of the, uh, of the CBA, but um, I think it is, look, I think it's three firsts and probably multiple day two picks as well. Um, you know, I would point to the Deshaun Watson trade, the Russell Wilson trade, and say I'm starting here and I want at least this and more. I mean, he's younger, obviously does not have, you know, nearly the off-field issues. Maybe you, you start throwing in some veteran players as well or or good rookie contract players. Um, I hear you. Two first-round picks is a lot, but for a marquee 26-year-old franchise quarterback, I don't think it. I don't think you know the fans wouldn't think it's a lot in Baltimore. I'll put it that way. Yeah, no. And as a Patriots fan, when I heard that, I, when I'm like, jump on it, jump on it. Yeah, no. I, I think I think I, I'm kind of with Eric. Um, I think this. You know, I interpret this at least as you know the Ravens basically telling Lamar, yeah, we're gonna let we're gonna let the market decide what what your kind of price tag is. I mean, it, it does not really obviously being privy to the backroom deals. It it does say to me that there is probably some, a move like this probably is made in the context of a somewhat substantial gap in what they currently feel, you you know, the two sides feel the number should be. So why not let the kind of market dictate that? And if it ends up, you lose, I, the Ravens do kind of retain the choice always to retain him. If with with this type of situation, right? If they want to, yeah. So they have the right of first refusal after the offer sheet. It sounds like, based on reports, they had gotten into the range of 135 million fully guaranteed, which would still be a you know a, a market difference than the number two. You know, Aaron Rodgers with 101 and a half. Um, I just think there are some owners out there. Look, Lamar Jackson's from Miami. Uh, Stephen Ross is 82 years old, is an independently wealthy, and has been trying to find a franchise quarterback for a very long time, pretty much since Dan Marino. Um, and I think he's losing some patience. And so maybe they don't go to the 230 million fully guaranteed route, but even if say let's say they bridge the gap and go to 180, is Baltimore going to match that? Maybe they do. And I think the angle could be we don't want to give them that deal ourselves and have other other owners mad at us. But if we match someone else's offer sheet, then it's not really our fault. And we didn't give them that deal. Um, so, you know, we didn't break precedent. But 
you know, maybe they also are, or clearly they are comfortable losing him if it comes to that. So in your opinion, I'm just obviously you work besides draft stuff, you, you are a pro football focus, which is kind of the lead uh, firm that evaluates talent. In your opinion, is Lamar Jackson that much better than Tua? Yes, uh, I, I, I think he is. Yeah, I mean, look, there are some minor injury concerns with Lamar as well. Obviously, he's missed time the last two seasons. Um, but, yeah, I, I think he's just a better passer, and, and I know he gets knocked as a passer. Uh, I think Tua had the blessing of Mike McDaniel last year. And not that he's bad, but, um, you know, I think I think the three of us could probably put up some decent numbers with Mike McDaniel and Tyreek Hill um, in Miami last year. And then you just add in the rushing ability and what McDaniel could do with an athlete like him at quarterback and, and his run game, you know, I, I just – yeah, I, I think he is that much better than Tua Tagovailoa. And that's with no due disrespect, you know, to Mr. Tagovailoa. So a, a conference I care deeply about uh, through relatives and stuff. I happen to be a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan. Could you talk about the dumpster fire right now? That's the NFC South. I think I'm about to get called for a quarterback for the NFC South. But I mean, let's realize, obviously, the Saints just signed Derek Carr, which I guess means Jameis Winston will be back on the open market and he'll be, you know, a top backup for some team. I maybe maybe some team will have him compete for the starting job. But, you know, there's but the Buccaneers, as far as I know, have Kyle Trask as their starting quarterback as of right now. The Panthers, I I don't know who's the starting quarterback of the Panthers. Uh, the guy, well, I think the, Matt Corral, I guess. <laughs> no, no, no. But what about the guy they got from the Jets? Uh, the Jets, the Panthers. They trade. Uh, he's he's not under contract right now. Sam Darnold. Oh, Sam Darnold. Okay, so they don't even have him. I don't know. The Falcons is Mariota still on the team, or they got rid of him? They dumped him, right? Desmond Ritter was a third round pick last year. All right, so Desmond Ritter. So, what do you think is going to happen in this dumpster fire? That's the NFC South. Like this is the Saints, who were, by the way, have never been really even last year. They weren't that bad a team. Now that they have Derek Carr, do they have to be the favorites in the NFC South? And we'll see what happens to the quarterback play and the other three teams. Yeah, you probably want to wait, but they went from about plus 220 to plus 130 based on the Derek Carr news at, you know, at, at some major book. So they are definitely the odds-on favorite right now. But before that, all four teams were, had about the same odds because I, I think everyone else had their hands raised like, what is this division? What are they doing? Um, I think Carolina is going to trade up in this draft and take a guy top five. I'd be surprised if they don't. Um, they've tried the veteran route multiple times. It has not worked out. And then in Tampa, your, your Tampa Bay Buccaneers – I think the odds Kyle Trask is a starter week one or close to 0%, no matter what they say in the media or they try to talk him up. Um, he wasn't even the backup the last couple of years. It was Blaine Gabbert instead of him. So I don't know how they address that. Maybe they're a team that kind of waits for the market to play out and then gets into the Baker Mayfield and Jimmy Garoppolo sweepstakes like we talked about a little bit. Um, but, yeah, it is it is a division, it's a division and a very, very poor spot. I think the Saints, like you said, pretty good team. You add in Derek Carr. They'll win the division at like nine and eight and probably lose first round of the playoffs. Yeah. Could you also, so let me, in our last couple minutes, we obviously just had the NFL combine and we've had debate. Everybody on this that listened to us for the last nine years knows that I love the NFL combine. There's nothing. I, matter of fact, I will say that I enjoy it mo- watching it more than many NFL games that I watch. So I know Shane's just like incredulous me saying this, but it's true. Who do you think, what did you what metrics do you think are meaningful, if any, from the NFL Combine? Do you think there are any players that actually really improve their stock in the NFL Combine? And if the answer is yes, do you think it's appropriate that their stock actually improve? So I think the agility testing matters a good amount. Um, you know, so the three cone and short shuttle, it obviously matters for certain positions, but 
Yeah, like the 40-yard dash, I don't think really matters, especially now with all the player tracking data we have where you can see their college speeds. I don't think these teams care all that much. I mean, the Rams have basically said, we don't really care what these teams do, um, and then or these players do, and then explosiveness. So the broad jump and the vertical, I think, matter to a degree. But I'd be with you. You shouldn't come into this thing saying, hey, this guy is worth the 100th overall pick. He tests really well, and now he's worth the 50th overall pick. Like, that is that is bad process. Uh, these guys are good athletes. Like, no shock. They're college football players that are at the NFL Combine. But, um, you know, I think guys can raise their stock, frankly, more in the interviews and in a lot of the other components of the Combine. But I will say, just throw a name out there, um, Ade Adebaware, the Northwestern uh, defensive lineman, no one's talking about it because of Anthony Richardson and his his incredible numbers, but he had one of the craziest combines we've seen in a long time and is probably a guy that boosted his stock maybe 20 or so spots. Um, whether that's that's correct or not, I don't know, but I think he may have done that. And so in our last question, uh, I have to ask you about someone who may go number one. I just like your opinion. Um, I'm bigger than Bryce Young. So now the question becomes, I don't want to get hit by a 290-pound, 320-pound lineman. Um, can he be good enough at whatever they list him at? Five, ten and a quarter, 190. They're listing him at 204. I'm not believing any of that. Whatever. Is, can, is he the number one quarterback? And I'm not saying everyone has to look 6'5", like Justin Herbert or Tom Brady or whatever. But can he survive the NFL at the size he is? I actually love that you brought this up because I think this is a perfect topic for this show. So I had a conversation with multiple personnel guys with different teams this past week in Indy. And they told me... We basically, we think the media now is projecting onto us. Like we've done things in the past where we avoid guys of certain measurables and have all these thresholds. And we think that we actually think Bryce Young, it does not matter as much as you guys do. Like you're almost trying to get in our minds and speak for us and assume that we're afraid of him, but we're really not. And I found that fascinating that we almost kind of have taken their narratives and spit it back on them. So I do. I think he is a guy that I would take first overall. Well, I'm not saying, you know, I, you know Chicago should do it, but I think he's worthy of the number one overall pick. Um, I think he has some of the best poise and, and pocket presence and ability to avoid a lot of those hits of any quarterback I've seen in a very long time. Only had one batted pass. I know that always gets brought up with the short guys. Only had one batted pass this past year. Um, look, the size is a concern. He could get hurt. But if there was a guy I think could do well, it is a player like him who avoids a lot of that contact. Well, let me ask you now. I, I lied to our listeners here on Morton Moneyball. Now I have one more question given what you just answered. If you're the Bears... There's a great example. You have Justin Fields. You could, te- you could stay with Justin Fields. You're not going to draft Bryce Young if your plan is to stay with Justin Fields. You would trade down, maybe get a boatload of picks for it. If you're the Chicago Bears, what do you do? Have you seen enough from Justin Fields to call him your quarterback of the future? Despite you could pick from Bryce Young, you could get C.J. Stroud, you could get Will Levitz, you could get, you're probably not going to take Anthony Robinson, the, the, that guy, even though his measurables were great, you're not taking him with the number one overall pick. But what would you do if you were the Bears? Yeah, so I'm looking to trade down on a massive haul. This team is so far away and has so many holes that basically every other position besides, I mean, even, yes, there's fair to have some questions about Justin Fields, but I think he was a better prospect coming out than this class. I will say this, though, and I know things can always change in a year down the road, Caleb Williams at USC, who's going to be, as of right now, going to be the first overall pick next year. If he was available right now, I think the Bears would have strongly considered moving on from Justin Fields. But I think in this class, you trade down and, you know, go into Thaler Massey, which inspired my book about draft trades, trade down pretty far and get as many picks as humanly possible to try to add as many players 
as you possibly can because th- that team is is in rough shape otherwise. Well, I've heard rumors that the Bears are going to trade down at least twice, but we'll see. So we'd like to thank you, uh, Brad Spielberger. Brad works as a salary cap analyst for Pro Football Focus. He's also a contributor to OverTheCap.com. Brad, thank you for joining Shane and me here on Morton Moneyball. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, that's been our quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics. Coming to you live of sorts, recorded together in person in the business radio studios this week, rolling into Q4 now, an open topics segment. We've got some baseball to talk about. The guys are fired up. They have been for a couple of weeks now, fired up about this tournament that's being played. I don't even know what it is. You'll have to explain this thing to me. It sounds interesting. But Shane's going to kick us off with the hockey fact. Well, and it kind of links to uh, the World Baseball Classic as well. And that I've kind of been spending the last week kind of really pondering the increasingly international flavor of both hockey and baseball. And I think the World Baseball Classic, obviously, we'll talk about. But I want to kind of – a fun thing I noticed in hockey right now, and there's a lot of notable things about this season that we've discussed and we'll continue to discuss. But right now, the top five point-getters – in the NHL, current NHL season, come from five different countries. And I think that's got to be the first time that's ever happened. Trivia. Can you name the five countries, fellas? Yeah. Go for it. Just I'm the countries. You don't have to name the players. U.S. U.S. Canada, U.S. Russia. is Canada. number five. Canada. Yeah. Canada is number one, Connor McDavid. Russia. Uh, Russia. Russia is number three, Nikita Khrushchev. Nikita Khrushchev? What the hell? Uh, Kucherov, sorry. (laughs) Nikita Khrushchev. Khrushchev is uh, way down, like 50 or 60. Kucherov. The Czech Republic. Correct. At uh, David Pasternak at number four. And number two is Leon uh, Drazel. You wouldn't have got this Germany. No, No, I wouldn't have guessed. I would have guessed one of the... Poland or one of Sweden, those you know, Sweden type of thing. Uh, yeah. so, I wouldn't have asked Germany. But, again, okay. like we, you know, we all kind of know the mix of countries that do participate in hockey. And I, on an international scale, skates, you'd still regard it as a regional sport. But it's just amazing to me. I don't think that we've ever had that, that there, there's been so much international kind of influence, is it, is especially it, at the top end. Is it chance or is it, in fact, have we seen this? Is this beginning to reflect base rates? I think it's beginning to reflect base rates. Certainly huh. teams like the Czech Republic, Germany, all these kind of countries have had historically some participants like Jeremy Jager, obviously from way back when. But I think it really is sort of uh, an increasingly international community that's participating in hockey. And I think that's being reflected in the major leagues. And now turning to baseball, I think we're really kind of seeing that extra international community in the World Baseball Classic, which I think is such a phenomenal event. Someone just described the basic tournament. What's the structure of this tournament? What are we What are we watching? The structure is kind of like the World Cup of Soccer in the sense that, pods? like, you've got are, like there's there's sort of the groups. We're just kind of wrapping up the group stage. There were five, four essentially pools, kind of an Asia pool and Europe pool and you know Latin American pool, etc. And so there's kind of like four regional pools, and so. To half the teams basically are so advanced out of that, and then we're about to enter kind of the knockout round. And how are they going to structure an eight-team knockout round? Is it like that? Sounds like the College World One Series. One and done, all the way through. Yeah, it's just straight up knockout. Okay, is it really? Wow, it's it's a little. I believe I mean, so. It's yeah. interesting because the the eligibility requirements are very very loose. 
What does so that mean? You could have like a, a grandparent who is from the Netherlands and you've been here for two centuries. And, and well, that's you also that. become that true, true for, the world, for the Olympics. For the, for the Olympics. Yeah, yeah it's, it's basically the same as the Olympics. Okay. You know, so... Uh, so are people... Are we seeing I mean, it's, that? It's only exacerbated. It's kind of exacerbated because, again, as diverse... As international as baseball is... To fill out like a, 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 a twenty country <laughs> bracket that's all competitive. The next question is hard. China is hard. I mean, so, yeah. so you know, teams like or Israel, yeah. you know, have have teams in this, and they do to the extent that there's kind of major leaguers or people we'd recognize in it. Most of these are people that you know maybe grew American. up in America yeah. or you know or, or, or Mexico or something like that, and just happen to have a national link where they can of, get on. This of the team. top, I'm still still trying to get the basics yeah. here. Of the top 100 players in Major League Baseball, how many are playing in this tournament ballpark? Of the top 100, uh, probably 30. Maybe wow. more. It depends on. I mean, yeah. Mike Trout's playing. Otani's playing. Yeah, I mean, you look uh, at the U.S. and Dominican Republican teams, or, or, or the very, Venezuelan team, and so they look like all-star teams. Yeah. Who are the Who are the favorites? Who are the top? Who are the competitive? Who are the, Who's in the running for actually getting? Well, it done? it's in United States, United D- States, DR, Japan, Japan, Dominican Republic, yeah. Venezuela, Puerto Rico. That's five. That's oh no, I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not done. I, I, I feel <laughs> like did I. Um, Mexico, I think, could make some noise. I mean, as far as when, you know, again, with like single elimination knockout. Yeah. What I was trying you to know. look at here on the schedule is how often they play. Because, for example, let's play, I don't know, maybe they play like every three days, four days. Like, mm-hmm. can one pitcher basically pitch most of the games? Well, they're doing kind of, again, it's because for the major leaguers, it's also spring training, right? So it's kind of like. They're doing kind of the Tampa Bay, oh, okay. uh, Tampa Bay, like you know, your starting starting pitchers, you know, go three innings, three four innings, yeah. and stuff like okay. that. So, so they're it's not, a little bit, they're it's not a little bit more of a seven. playoff level bullpen. Kind they're of. not ready to go seven, eight innings anyway. They're not going to do it. I mean, and they're not going to. They've do got it. a season to look out for. That's always the problem. I mean, you know, Otani's just getting ready for the major leagues. I mean, he pitched I think four innings in his first start. Um, they're not going to go seven or eight. They're not going to go six even. Mm-hmm. Maybe they will in the in the knockout. Who knows? I mean, again, it's as well. So, but y'all are fired up about it. So, what are you seeing that has well, you fired up? I mean, it's real baseball as opposed to spring training, which okay. which they're just kind of you know. Yeah, I guess it, it's 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 an early view of baseball where they really care about it, and and it's interesting to sort of see some of the kind of countries that aren't. All that you know, necessarily the the big competitors that consist entirely of the people who aren't major leaguers are so hyped to watch this tournament. They are, <laughs> you know, this is kind of their moment to shine. And and you do, in addition to kind of just sort of you know representing your country, you get these kind of random sort of things. Like there was this, uh, I, I saw this picture from Nicaragua, Duque Duque Hebert. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing right. He basically he. He he was pitching for Nicaragua against the Dominican Republic. He strikes out in one inning. Juan Soto, Julio Rodriguez, and Rafael Devers. Oh, that's not bad. Detroit Tigers <laughs> signed him after the game. Oh yeah, I read about. I did. I read about <laughs> yeah, that. Right? Why not? <laughs> yeah, it's a one life changing inning. Right. This guy's life is completely. You, you know, oh, that's, that's spectacular. I'm incredible, insane. right? That's spectacular. All right. You know, so I mean, it's sort of you know, it it. it it hits a lot of boxes as it's far as getting be, excited. It's going to get fun. Right now, the, the games are pretty mediocre. I mean, I watched uh, Puerto Rico, uh, perfect game Israel yesterday. Yeah. And, and Mer- it, the mercy, game got called early because, it, right? because it was a mercy yeah, yeah, rule. Right. But it was, it, was, it was a well-played game. I mean, Israel's not a terrible team. They have, they have essentially former major leaguers. Yeah, um, and I, I mean, it, it, right now, the group stage you do, there are already group great games at the group stage. I mean, you know, this group of, the, the, you know, Venezuela, Dominican Republic, and, you know, I think one of the other ones, Mexico, is all in the same group. So it's, it's like there is Jeez. a group of death and everything like that or 
you know, our version of it. But there are also, you know, when, when the U.S. plays Canada, it's, it's not no, I mean, I watched that last night. It was basically batting practice. Are they going to move to the groups like the World Cup does groups eventually not geographic? Let's spread out competitively. Yeah, well, it's about groups. to all combine together, I think, but, at the quarterfinals. Stage. But I mean in the future, because this geographic thing, that Latin America group sounds like craziness, and North America's not Yeah, so I, I mean, you know, the reason for – I mean, I guess – it would have to be that you would have to kind of host everything. One of the reasons is, you know, travel and stuff like that, see, that, okay. you know, again, they're organizing it to kind of minimize, like, you know, Disruption. travel, especially during kind of spring training cycling up. So that's got a certain advantage to it. But, you know, I, I, I would love to kind of have this thing a few years from now be like the World Cup where there's like a host nation and we yep. just go crazy about it for a month. Yep. Yep. All right. So what else? We've Just a touch on hockey there and then – a fair bit on baseball, this this crazy international tournament that's going on. What else is going on in the world of sports? Well, I'll just talk briefly. So actually, one of the really big tennis tournaments that's not a major is happening right now, which is the Indian Wells Tournament. The men and women both play mm-hmm. it. Um, remind all me, it's remind it's, me it's the a Masters 1000. 1000. So it's, okay. it's a 1000 event. Uh, but, you know, after the Australian Open, it's the really the biggest event in the early part of the season. Um, I was, you know, all the top players are there, except, of course, for Djokovic, who can't come into the U.S. to play the event. Uh, so, you know, Alcaraz is the favorite. Nadal's still injured, so he's not there as well. Um, the match I watched yesterday, again, made me wonder how strong the next generation of players are. Because the number seven player in the world is a Danish player, Holger Rune. Um, I saw him get beaten by a th- almost 38-year-old Stan Wawrinka last night. Huh. And Stan should have beaten him easily in straight sets. Wawrinka kind of choked in the second set but ended up beating him in the third set. And I'm thinking, wow, if Stan Wawrinka can beat the number seven player in the world, and it right. should have been 6-2, 6-3. Wawrinka had a match point to make it 6-2, 6-3. I'm thinking, this is not the great Stan Wawrinka, by the way. Who Apparently, I, I heard some stat. I forget how many victories he has against top ten players. Like 70 in his career. Some amazing number. And by the way, people forget his three majors. He beat Djokovic in the final in all three majors that he won. Mm. So that's another ridiculously impressive stat. So, Eric, real quickly, is do we know anything about trends in tennis that would make us skeptical about the, quote, next generation of tennis stars because wouldn't we see this i mean you might expect it if demographically you know interest in the sport was waning is there any reason to believe that no i don't think so look money's way up i would be i would think it's the opposite uh it's definitely more international there are a lot of great players from lots of countries and you just as great as federer nadal and djokovic are i'm still having trouble believing that if this generation was really good that a 25-year-old can't beat a 37-year-old. I'm just still having trouble believing that, Mm -hmm. and especially in matches that go longer and especially in tournaments that have seven rounds. I just It's just hard for me to... Well, that's what the majors have. The majors have seven rounds, best of five on the men's side. It's just... No, this generation's just not as good. Okay, so next generation, Alcaraz is supposed to save us all, right? Do we still believe that? Is it just been his injury that has dropped him off the, her, the radar? Well, he's still lately? ranked number two in the world. He's 19 years old. So there's a lot of upside there. He obviously has one major in the bank. But, you know, besides the big three... No one in the last, I think it's 25 years on the men's side, has more than three majors. So, I mean, what's his upside? Is he going to win four majors, five? Is it 10? People said oh, 10. I don't think so. 
I don't think he's going to get there. I mean, Warinka has three, and Andy Murray has three. Then there's a bunch of guys a little bit have one here, one there, but that's it. I just don't see it. I, I Yeah, I think Alcaraz is good. I don't think he can win on all surfaces the way the, the big three have. I, I just think we're a long way from that. Okay. So sad report from Indian Wells. But the tennis has been great. And on the women's side, let me just say, we. I think there's a difference there. I think Iga Swantek, who's now, I think she may have just turned 21. She has three majors. She's the dominant number one player since, I just can't remember the name, the Aussie woman that retired. The woman that retired like at age 25. Either way, who was number one in the world at the time? Um, she... I think Swantek is a fantastic player. I think she has a possibility of... I'm taking the over on 10 for majors for her. Easily, I'm taking the over on 10. Eric, are there is there any kind of home home nation advantage? Do team... Do, do continent advantage? Do people play better on their own continent in tennis? If, if that's correlated with the surface in which they trained on, yeah. then the answer is yes. Like if European players play better at the French, not because it's less travel, I don't think, anymore. It's because they play a lot on clay growing up. I think in Australia— And Spain and Italy presumably have a lot of clay as well. Oh, Spain. matter of fact, they have the Madrid Open every yeah. year, the Italian— By the way, the French is the last of the big clay court tournaments, usually about four or five lead-up tournaments. I think things are very surface-dependent mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. and I think that was— the, that's the amazing thing about the big three. You know, people forget, like McEnroe, Connors, etc. They were all great players. They never won the French, so that's they so were great. To no, think no, about. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's amazing to think about. Yeah. And it's look, Bjorn Borg. I'm pretty sure won all of his majors at Wimbledon in the U.S. Open. Bjorn Borg never won the French, and I don't think he ever won the Australian Open. I think he won the U.S. Open and Wimbledon. So things were very concentrated on just a few majors back then. I think it's a big, big difference. So, of course, uh, yeah, either way, I, I think that's changed a lot. Eric, what about the NBA? You are our oh. resident season ticket holder for the Sixers. Are you, are you Again, I hate to drag you from one sad, pessimistic topic to another, but you're shaking your head sadly. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm starting to believe again that, you know, we're at about as peak Sixers in the next couple of years we can be. Look, Embiid's now 28. For a seven foot one, 270-pound center, the wear and tear eventually will start to show on him. Let, let's stop forgetting he's not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's not going to play till 42. But hold on. Ha- let's, but let's talk about the where we are now. We're nearing the end of the regular season. We're within about a month or so. So let's talk about how the seeds are stacking up and how the prospects look for no, 20, well, this season. Well, the Sixers are the three seed in the East. They're now tied with the Celtics for the two. I think it really matters. I think I think the Sixers, to have any chance, have to pass the Celtics. I think we have to get home court against them when we play the Celtics in the in the whatever round. That would be the semifinal round because two plays three. Mm-hmm. So that's another problem with the three. You're not only on the road against the two seed, which is the Celtics, then you have to play the Bucks in the next round. I just don't see the Sixers winning two series on the road against and I gu- the Celtics. I guess you're kind of doing sort of almost like... You're, you're presenting the worst-case scenario of just assuming chalk, right? Because, you know, the Sixers could be saved in these decisions if the, uh, either the Celtics or, or Bucks are upset so, by some other team. Well, so what it would take, just to let you know, remember now, there's six teams that make the playoffs. Then there's the four play-in teams. So one and two also get to play the play-in teams. So let's remember, they're not—I mean, they're sort of playoff yeah. teams, but they're not really. So if you're one and two— Besides home court until the final round, yeah. you play seven and eight. 
Look at the difference. The five and six seed. The Cleveland Cavaliers, who, by the way, have the best plus minus in the NBA. The Cleveland Cavaliers have the best plus minus in the NBA. Their point differential is 5.4 per game difference. That's the number one of any team in the NBA, Eastern Conference and West. They're sitting at the four seed. Could they beat the Bucks? I mean, maybe yeah. from just pure strength, like ELO ratings, they're a pretty reasonable team. The five seed, you now get down to the Miami Heat. So are the Miami Heat, are yeah. they going to beat somebody? I don't know. That's why I think the Sixers yeah, I mean, being the I mean, two obviously seed the, really the, matters. The, the, you know, I, I, I think we, we, we do some version of this often when we talk about the basketball playoffs. It does still seem like, you know, the talent dis- distribution is such that, you know, the it, it's it's unlikely that, Teams below the top four in each conference are going to necessarily be relevant in the late stages of the playoffs. It, it can happen, but it's not likely. So, so therefore, the seedings of those top four in each conference become that much extra important. I think three could be right. six could lose to three. Three could lose to six. Yeah. Four could lose to five. I find it very unlikely that one and two that that's what's going to happen, Real, especially this year. Real quickly, clarification on the play the play in games, which I had forgotten about for a moment. Uh, is it a one game play in or two out of three? Yes and no. It has to be yes and no. As I remember, I haven't looked at this in a while. When ten, like some of the teams have two opportunities to win. Yeah, like right. if you're the, the lower, seven the seed, seeds, the yeah. lower, like the right. seven and eight, don't have to win the first game. Okay, like they can lose and still advance. But nine and ten, if they it's lose, like a, they're one and done, and they're like a, out. It's like a carnival game. It's so strange. <laughs> okay, go into five thirty eight's power rankings. Not just their power rankings, but their simulation for winning the whole thing. They have the top three. Now, granted, numbers four and five are more or less tied with number three, but they have it Bucks, Celtics, Sixers on chance of winning the finals. And of course, Bucks are at a quarter, so they're much higher than everyone else. But the Celtics, Sixers, and then Nuggets, Grizzlies at twelve. But I'm just I'm struck by how the the, the East is just looking so much stronger at the top than the West. According to five thirty eight. Well, you're even pointing out if the top three teams, according I had the Nuggets and the Sixers roughly tied. Let's say the top three teams are all in the East. That must say what must the win probability of the East team be in the finals yeah. if that if the top three are all in the East because only one of them obviously can make the finals. So that, yeah, it's got to be up in like the sixty range. It's got to be at like least that, yeah. at least so, in the so sixty let's, range. Let's talk about the West because the Nuggets are leading out there, but maybe people still don't quite believe in them. The Grizzlies have obviously run into some John Morant drama. The Warriors have been unproven all year, though. They certainly, you know, have firepower to make a run if they get it together. And then what about the Suns? I mean, we haven't seen everybody since the Durant trade, really. We haven't seen that team, right? Could they be, or people must be talking about this, could they be like the Warriors were last year, where they really don't have their personnel come together until the end of the season, but then they do have them together and make a run? Yeah, the only worry I have is that um, I saw the Suns play last night. I watched them play. Lots play the Warriors actually last night. What it's going to come down to? I mean, no one can cover Kevin Durant, so let's—he's unguardable, so that's fine. And no, no, I'm just saying okay. he's unguardable; he can't be covered. And they have Devin Booker, so he really can't be covered either. But here's the problem: now I'm seeing, boy, do they wish they had the Chris Paul of five years ago? Because mm. Chris Paul not only has slowed down, but his shooting percentage is down. So it's you know, it kind of reminds me. That's what's going to be the key. If you tell me that Chris Paul can shoot well in the playoffs, they can go a long way. You can't count on the center. Obviously, you know my theory, DeAndre Ayton. They they obviously traded Bridges. They traded a lot of talent to get Kevin Durant. 
Durant and Booker will get double teamed constantly. And now the question is, can DeAndre Ayton and Chris Paul win you a title? That's the problem I have with them. Eric, talk about the age curve for shooting, for guard shooting. I wouldn't have necessarily expected shooting to drop off with age. In fact, if anything, I I would have expected shooting to kind of improve for much of the career anyway. Well, here's what I would say. Shooting if you're open. So the problem is older guys, especially a guy like Chris Paul, who's also small, he can't get open. He doesn't create His ability this. to create separation that's, is that's really what what's going to say. That's yeah. what's compromised. And, you know, they always say for the top shooters, shooting's in the legs. Well, once your legs go, your shooting goes. And so he doesn't beat people off the dribble anymore. He's not the same fast Chris Paul. He still has quickness in some ways in short spurts. Also, my guess is... He can play well for 10 or 15 minutes a game. He can't play well for 35 minutes a game. So now who's their backup point guard when he's not in the game? What's going to happen there? Also, the Suns are not going to play that many games together. So I love their roster, yeah. but I just don't think it's enough games for them to do enough damage. By the way, I just, I'm st- I'll put a dark horse out there. I, I'm going to say right now, if I had to bet just because of the betting odds... I'm going to take the Clippers in the West. Get out. Yep. I, I just, I have a feeling, you know, look. They you have st- a feeling this is Wharton Moneyball. Well, they still have Paul George and they still have Kawhi Leonard. And so they've got enough talent. I'm just saying, I think given the betting odds on them. Yeah. Because they're way down the list. They're like the 15th ranked team on 538. Mm-hmm. I, I like that bet because the two of them get playing well. And they're the guys that have the ball in their hands every play. Mm-hmm. I still have a belief that the Clippers. I wouldn't bet them to win the whole thing, but at their odds, yeah, better, I mean, I mean better obviously that. acknowledging that this is this would be a year to do it because you know the West especially seems rel- you know there's no dominant team out there. Every team you could probably come up with a weakness or two. I like it. I like it. What position do you think craftiness most uh, matters? So, what, what position can an old wise guy kind of extend his career? best can't teach height i'll take the tall guy (laughs) every time Mm -hmm. i mean you see lots of guys that are in their mid to late 30s that um can still play in the nba can still use the craftiness their size etc knows how to box people out so that i think yeah kate's question is more like you know would that would suggest like a center or something like that but we also know centers are probably the least likely just kind of physically to make it to that advanced age so is is there kind of a sweet spot where the height is, uh, you're using kind of the height part of your advantage more, I, I'm, I'm mostly, but not enduring the physical stress of it. I actually have the same intuition, though, that it's the, you know, because talking about Chris Paul brought it to mind. It's like the guy has got all the wisdom in the world and all the craftiness, but at point, you, you, just, you just need to have, you need to have quicks or you just can't execute it. For the big guys in the middle, I mean, we've all played basketball with some, you know, old guy. We, now we're right. the old guys, but the old guy in the middle who's just crafty, you know, and he just like, he gets his body in the right place and get a ball up. And, and I, my sense is that it doesn't help Chris Paul to be the old I'll, I'll give you my prototype just in 10 seconds. Brooke Lopez. Yeah. Lopez, good. this guy can good. shoot threes. He can really play. He knows when to rebound. He knows when to put in a lot of effort. He's my prototypical guy. He could look like to me like he could play for another five years doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, and by the way, it says a lot of great things for the Bucks. I still have said the Bucks in the East. I, I like the Bucks to win the title, and I'll stand by this. I think the Bucks would have won the title last year if Chris Middleton hadn't gotten injured. They're still my favorite team. I like their combination of Giannis, Middleton, Lopez, etc. 
Well, that Bucks, Celtics, Sixers triangle is going to be so exciting, fun to play out over the next end of regular season and then into the playoffs. All right, guys, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. That's been two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. For the whole team, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, this has been Cade Massey. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.